Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Introducing Carissa Green Industries. Let's get ready to launch. I'm talking with Jason Tate, a serious heavyweight veteran of the cybersecurity world. We cover all sorts of ground, from his crossover from the black hat world to the US military to consultant. We talk about all the things he's seen that have led him to his current stance on how best executives can confront the cyber threats. Jason, thank you so much for joining me on my show today. I'm really excited to learn more about your journey and things you've been getting up to over the past 20 years. How are you doing today? I'm super fantastic, Carissa. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. I'm really excited for this. So let's jump straight in. Jason, keen to hear about your security journey as it appears quite interesting. Okay, so my security journey into the, uh, I'd say the cyber warfare game, I started about, uh, I'd say about 20 years ago. I uh, worked for the Navy. I was a United States Naval sailor, if you will. And then I, um, in the, the latter part of my journey in the United States Navy, I started to get into cyber warfare, a uh, very unique, uh, I would say, uh, field at the time for the United States Navy to, to actually uh, develop and start to cultivate the, the information technology, information warfare and intelligence, uh, I'd say discipline and migrate them all into one. In Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, I got out of the United States Navy and started working for a government contractor under a classified program uh, for a, um, a program called JTF GTMO, the Joint Task Force Gitmo, which is which basically stands for uh, Joint Task Force Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and that's when I started really delving into cyber warfare and computer network defense. Uh, that's the actual technical term that they leverage. Um, that was when I really started to get into cyber intelligence. Uh, this was back mm-hmm. 2002. And since then, I was recruited to work for a few uh, intelligence agencies uh, and worked also for the Army Research Laboratories. And then for about 15 years, I did cyber warfare, cyber intelligence, threat analysis, um, red team operations, and actually did a lot of threat hunting. So, you know, without speaking in a lot of um, acronyms and military lingo, I, I tracked and traced and hunted uh, cyber terrorists for, for all intents and purposes. I think that you, you definitely got an extensive journey, and that, that's definitely the area that I, I want to go down. Now, what I'd like to ask you is I understand you have a very strong viewpoint on some of the ongoing aspects of the U.S. government voting process, particularly the recent elections. Can you please explain your views in further detail? I sure can. I have no problem doing so. <laughs> so... Just to give a bit of context, uh, three years ago, four years ago, I started a company, Bits and Digits, and and, and th- there's a reason why I'm actually bringing this up. I, re- I created this company because for a long time, I was on the opposite side of how people understood cybersecurity. <clears throat> when I got into the, the, the cyber intelligence and cyber warfare game, <clears throat> excuse me, when I got into the cyber warfare game, it was you know, behind closed doors. A lot of people that did what we did were only doing it in those communities. So it's, it, it, it goes without saying we knew things that other people didn't. It was very classified, highly sensitive. And we, 
uh, new things about the cyber picture or the cyber landscape in the world that mm -hmm. other people didn't. I got out and started my own company because I felt like there was a very large gap in between what is available to protect people uh, from a technical and also from a, an argumentative and intelligence perspective. So I started this company to try basically bridge that gap. So mm -hmm. to your question, three years ago, um, I was literally talking to my business partner about some of the data breaches that were taking place. Now, mind you, before I started Bits and Digits, I was working, I was the chief information, well, I was the business information security officer for public, uh, public uh, for the public sector of Experian and also the marketing sector of Experian, uh, the data broker or the credit reporting agency. There was a big breach that had taken place there. I left and started my own company. Long story short, here's where I'm going. I was talking to my business partner and, you know, we were discussing all of the breaches that were taking place, uh, it, you know, Experian, T-Mobile, uh, HV Gary, all these major big city, you know, big time blockbuster breaches, Sony. And I was saying, you know, you know, if I wanted to, I was telling him, I was joking, I was being very jovial. I said, if I wanted to do something devastating to America, you know what I would do, man? I would go out and I would actually infiltrate all of these companies throw all the data out there so the forensics and any kind of any kind of analytical tracebacks or, or, or investigations it would be impossible for anybody to identify where these breaches came from ironically i'd say about three months later that's when we started to have the influx of breaches all across the world i mean you're talking mm -hmm. t-mobile you're talking uh anthem you're talking Experian, some of the largest data brokers some of the largest brokers of sensitive information and technology companies were getting breached left and right and mm. it, it it resonated i'd say a month later when i was doing some darknet research for, you know that was one of the services i used to provide and i was i was noticing that there were a un Unprecedented amount of database databases that were breached on the internet, being sold on the dark net for pennies on the dollar. Um, you know, there was a time where you know there was a, a 1.3 billion passwords and usernames that were just posted out on the internet, and it just hit me. It didn't make sense. You know, that I remember back in the days when I was doing dark net research, it would cost you about $500 to buy a database of about a million people. You know, mm. of, and those that that one million people wouldn't. It, it, you know, it wasn't surgical. And this database that we're talking about, you know, there were NSA that were diabold. And to be more specific to the question that you're asking, just about every last company that is registered on the electronic voting re uh, registry on the EAC.gov, each one of those companies, diabold and EAS, they were on that, they were in this data breach. So <clears throat> after looking into it deeper, I, I, you know, I said, you know what, that's, this is just happenstance. It couldn't be anything correlating to, you know, anything coming up. And this was before the election. This is, I'd say, uh, the latter part of 2015. Slowly, <clears throat> slowly, we started seeing the DNC. You know, you remember the DNC hack? You remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Democratic National Committee hacks from the past couple of years. Right, right, right. So these little breaches or these breaches that were taking place, the NSA lost 50,000, you know, uh, credentials. And you've got, um, you know, again, Diabol, you've got Experian, one of the largest data brokers in the world. And Experian, let me just highly illuminate what, I, what the importance of the Experian breach was as it relates to this topic. Mm -hmm. If I want to rig, rig an election versus hacking it, what do I do? I target the mines. I target, I target how a, a society or a nation thinks. 
I want to control how they think and, and subdue it. I want to suppress it. So I'm going to do a, a suppression campaign. I'm going to go out and make sure that my targeted ads that I leverage through Facebook and Twitter and all of these other social synthetic social media uh, companies, I'm going to make sure that I own the narrative. I'm going to make sure that I know everything about everybody that's ever going to vote, and I'm going to know what their viewpoint is before they even think about it. So I'm going to I'm going to inundate the the, the ad networks and the marketing networks with a whole bunch of just extra or misinformation, as we call it. And I'm going to condition the networks or the condition the election from that angle. And that's if you want to take that angle of how to rig an election. And of course, I'm not going deep on that one unless you want to. Now, we take that information that we just we just discussed and you couple that with the OPM breach. You remember that? The Office of the Department and the government that maintains the database and the the most intimate details about everybody that owns, owns a clearance in the United States. Not only that it has a clearance, but that it has any kind of uh, position of trust. That database was breached right before the elections. And while it was sweeped under the rug, you know, I would say not by the media, but it was. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean to speak with any kind of conspiratorial overtone. <laughs> It's just the truth. It's the facts. The the you know, and, and that's by design. You know, everybody has a PR, a public relation or communication protocol, and that's what was leveraged in this situation. And coming from that background where I, you know, I worked in top secret environments for 17 plus years, I understand how that works. However, <clears throat> what's very interesting is nobody pays attention, or it was very, very little attention was paid to these technology, these tech companies that had their data breached, that there were records exposed, that, you know, I would say anybody with a moderate level of intellect could put those pieces together and say, okay, so, you know, Sun runs, you know, this microchip company, they developed this type of bus board, and this bus board is actually found in the Diabolt or in one of the, the main electronic voting systems that we you know, use in our elections. Why isn't that, why aren't those lines crossed? Why, why, where's the link analysis? Where's the investigation on that? Now, without going into too many, too much depth or chasing rabbit holes, my, um, I wrote an article about this, ironically, but mm -hmm. I deduced, or I, I came to the conclusion that it would be impossible to identify right now where the, the election rigging would have happened as far as attribution is concerned. However, <laughs> we all, um, I, I would suppose or, or assume that a lot of us heard about the, the DEF CON uh, voter vi uh, hacking voter village. I was yeah. there. And right, that, okay. That, right, that threw my neck for a turn because not only was it so easy to, to circumvent the, the security parameters or the security controls of these voting systems, the maturity of the, the, the regulations that govern them, the the stigs, if you will, or the secure templates or implementation guides of how or the baseline requirements of how a voting system should be configured were almost non-existent in comparison to, you know, you think about think about a a, um, a motor or the, the the electronic components of a car. There are regulations and guidelines that govern how these 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 systems are made, and we can't say that it's a, a lack of maturity because we've been using electronic voting systems for a long time. But it is kind of um, interesting that the maturity of our safeguards for the electronic voting systems are so um, sophomore-ish, let me just say that. And on top of that, you know, how do you, how do you, how does one go about it? I wouldn't say that it's, you know, how, you know, Hollywood portray, you know, some secret Russian spies come into, uh, you know, an industrial uh, supply chain system where the chips are being manufactured and plant some chip. However, I wouldn't say that's too far <laughs> on talking about that. But in reality, 
you wouldn't need to do it. In reality, it wouldn't take much effort, much time to go in and understand, okay, well, um, you know, people are not following the basic rules of, of data security. You go into many, any of these companies that run the electronic voting system systems, and they don't adhere, with, well, and, and yes, I can speak definitively when I say this, they don't adhere to the basic business practices for, for cybersecurity and data privacy. You know, you've mm -hmm. got Sarbanes-Oxley, GLBA, uh, PCI, um, FISMA for the government federal programs, <clears throat> which, you know, require certain things like data address encryption, uh, authenticated logons, authentication, authentication level two, where you have to have something you know, something you have, and something you are to you know, provide access to a system. You look at these companies that provide the, <laughs> the construct of our voting system here in America, and you look and say, well, you know, how would they measure up against a, a, a moderate level hacking attack? Well, I don't think we have to ask that question. The, the proof is in the pudding. You can type into Google 1.4 billion passwords stolen 2015, and you'll see a list of every company that has anything to do with any electronic voting system that we've ever used, and you'll see those names. And that should answer your, that should answer your question, at least lightly. What are the implications these mechanisms have for the executive in the private sector? Talk more on the data breach side of things, because, I mean, that's definitely an area of concern. Uh, you probably heard uh, the mandatory data breach notification that's come into Australia. So it's mm -hmm. definitely been a heavy topic here. Obviously, if they do get breached, they have to declare that uh, to the government as well as the customers. What type of advice could you give to, to executives out there so they can feel a bit more reassured in their, their security practices and procedures? Yes, first and foremost, I would say executives should not be afraid to learn the basics of cybersecurity so they can understand their threat landscape. They need to, executives have been uh, traditionally focused only on business. And in my experience as a consultant, it's always been. You know, the consultant comes in to talk to the executives and they tell them or illuminate some of the issues that they have. And we're speaking to a ghost in the shell. That executive then defers to the CISO. The CISO defers to the information technology manager in hopes that they imp imp uh, implement the right safeguards. But here's what I'm about to answer your question with. The day that the executives that run these companies that are highly concerned branding, the PR, the, the negative blowback of a breach for their enterprises, the investment of $1,000 or some, some small investment to go take a small course on data privacy or, or, or information security as a whole would suit them well so they can digest and understand what are the real uh, vulnerabilities in their networks. For instance, a mature configuration management program, ensuring that everybody inside of an organization that are key players in the IT infrastructure across the entire inter enterprise has a CM board, a configuration management board that meets regularly to discuss the status of all of their information technology equipment, how, what the inventory controls are, when pushes are made, when pushes aren't made, what are the statuses of that situation. And the person that is chairing that board in the CMDB of the configuration management uh, board, that needs to be illuminated at a C-level component. Number two, data address encryption. Data address encryption is one of the most, I would say, the it's actually one of the, the only safe harbor controls that you can implement, one of the few safe harbor controls that you can implement to ensure that breach notification doesn't take place for an institution that has um, data address encryption. What is data address encryption? Whole disk encryption or encryption on a hard drive or a data uh, system that is encrypted 
with AES-256 or 128-bit al algorithms, or in America, we call it the FIPS 140-2 uh, uh, encryption algorithm standard. And this needs to be implemented holistically. And this is one of the biggest problems that I've seen in organizations. They, they go out and procure a technology, and that technology says, it's going to encrypt everything. All of your information or systems is protected. But what people fail to do or realize is that this company may be, this may company may be headquartered in Sydney, but it has 25 satellite offices. Who's managing and who's controlling the, 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 the encryption uh, data at rest encryption solution across all of these different um, these different locations in the organization? Is the solution federated? Has it been distilled and disseminated across all points, all points of the organization, and who's monitoring that? These types of statuses and updates need to be brought up in the CMDB or in the CMB configuration management board and illuminated at the risk, you know, risk meetings. These are really critical things. Another thing, keeping updates up to date and, and federated in your organization. It sounds mm -hmm. simple. But this is the when I get calls to come in for a ransomware or to fix a disaster, <laughs> it's almost like a doctor. Look, you can pay for prevention, but remediation is going to cost you twice as much. And as far as data breaches are concerned, <laughs> one of the easiest things you can do is implement a software update server. You know, and the only way that you can have an effective software update or a Windows update or an update solution for your enterprise is to understand what your enterprise contains. One of the biggest things that I've seen in, 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 the, in the industry is you, you may have a Windows-centric environment and you think that deploying a WSUS server is viable, but it's not. You, your inventory control system that has an inventory of every software procured should marry up with the inventory system that is electronic that you have in your enterprise. And that merriment needs to be checked effectively and efficiently at least every week to ensure you're not missing out software products that require updates throughout mm -hmm. the enterprise. Because, because it's not a one-size-fits-all. A lot of people say, okay, or a lot of institutions that I've seen, they go out and they buy an update solution because that's what happens. That's how that's the business or the game of cybersecurity. That's why in the beginning of this conversation, I said it's imperative that these execs take a little course, just a little mm. familiarity course, so they're not hustled or bamboozled or played um, you know, against their ignorance. So if you, you know, you get these tech companies to come in and say, look, we have a software update solution and it's going to update all your things. And then you know, they, they like the price tag. They like the way that they were wine and dine. Come to find out it's a plug and play solution. It only works for Windows, but you have Windows, you have Linux, you have Sun Solaris, you've got Adobe products, you've got your Salesforce. I mean, you've got a, a, a large federation of, of different software in your environment that you need to manage and maintain and mm. make sure that every last one of those components are updated. That's two. Number three, you got to dape it. You got to dape it. And dape it means deny all permit by exception. At your borders, at your gateways, at your, at your VPN, your outposts, every last one of your satellite offices needs to adhere closely to your main information security policy of the institution. And this is where it gets tricky. And I've seen it. It happens all the time. You've got the headquarters office. They're locked down. They've got the update server. You've got it. You know, they've got the tech support. HR, I mean, help desk is, is in sync. But you go out to, you know, the remote location in Vietnam and they have a VPN uplink that, the, you know, it's the, the bandwidth is very constrained. So they don't want to push updates all across that line. And they don't want to, 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 to have visibility because it clogs up the, the, the operational or the utility of the business utility of that line. 
So they don't mm. really manage it. The local office manager is not IT qualified. They don't have a local IT rep. So now you're looking at Vietnam where you have all of your financial data or all of your personal records sitting out there on servers that are antiquated and the laptops and the procurement processes that you have well mature in your HQ is not being pushed over into that office. You have to have visibility there. You have to have a 360 visibility of your entire enterprise in order to manage it and ensure that it's protected correctly. Number four, your policies. How do you prevent data breaches and ensure that the liability is not <clears throat> directly reflective upon your brand? Because that's what you're protecting at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're an exec, you're representing a brand, an institution where it's investors, po uh, politicians, and, and clients trust it. So what do you do to ensure that you are maintaining that brand in the best way possible? Number one, you have policies that dictate how you operate from an information security perspective. And those policies need to bleed into or marry with the employee handbook. And that employee handbook needs to be effectively communicated through HR onboarding about what the rules of engagement are as far as mm -hmm, using mm -hmm. information technology products. Because, yes. as we said, information security and, 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 and data privacy and intellectual property theft, that, that's rampant. I, I, can, I can tell you literally in the last 48 hours about cases where I know of corporate espionage cases where, you know, they want to find out bits and digits. Can you guys tell us how this happened? Yeah, of course we can. You didn't have the policies in place to actually effectively monitor these controls. So when we go into policies, these policies are what's going to save a company from you know, the insurance companies that, that, that govern that company or that underwrite that company's policy, um, they're going to protect them from the liability in the event that, you know, the insurance company says, well, look, did you follow the rules of law? Because that's what the data breach notification rule says. The rule of law says that you'll maintain certain data, uh, certain data security standards. And were those data security standards effectively communicated to your employees? Do you have periodic training for your employees to understand the risks and liabilities of surfing porn on this on, on, on a work computer? Uh, no, no. I mean, I say that not to be not to be negative or bring any lower vibrations no. in the conversation. No. Yes. But the. These are the types of instances that open up the, por the portals in your company that allows these these risks to be introduced and, and exploited. Going and going to websites or not having content filtering in place, like a blue coat proxy or some kind of HT proxy that actually monitors what employees are doing on a day to day basis, not just to be spies or to be surveillance. Uh, you know, the surveillance overhanging uh, uh, arm of the company to say, "Look, we want to watch what you're doing." No. It's okay. It doesn't matter what people think. At the end of the day, you're ensuring the brand of your company. Yes, you're monitoring. Yes, you're ensuring that this person is not going up and creating VNC or RDP back, uh, 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 pipes into your network that somebody can go in and steal that data that's unencrypted because while it may be data at rest encrypted, that session was open. So now they're pulling it live off of the data, uh, off of that workstation that has a, a share to a, da a network database that you know has personal information. This is what you got to think about. There's 360 degrees. You got to know your network. You got to know your environment. You got to trust your 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 information security officers of your uh, uh, of your organization, and you have to make sure that you know where your loops your loop your loopholes are, and pay attention. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're right. One one thing I'd like to talk a little bit more about, and you'll get your opinion. Brand of company now. <laughs> What I've noticed, and you spoke about negative blowback, so absolutely. So when companies get breached and all this type of stuff, what I've noticed, and you probably have as well, sometimes companies don't say anything and they don't they don't have any sort of comm strategy around how do we handle an incident when we do get breached. What are your thoughts around that? Because, I mean, saying nothing 
uh, to me personally is probably one of the worst things you can do because it's not really giving assurance one to internal employees, but also externally to your customers and clients as well. Where do you believe executives need to start employing more of this process? Because to me, it's going to keep happening. But I have noticed a lot of companies are shying away from saying anything at all. What's your advice around that? <laughs> companies are shying away. That's that's the initial response that any PR or any legal counsel advisor would tell an exec about a breach or about mm. a vulnerability in their environment because of the brand impact, the negative correct, brand correct. impact that it will have. You're going to talk yes. about you're going to talk about a <laughs> vulnerability that we didn't fix, right? <laughs> we didn't fix. And we're going to declare it. We're going to tell and everyone gonna, about it. And then we're going to. And then our stock prices are going to go down. You know, our insurance is going to go up. People are our brand integrity is going to decrease. So it's a, it's a nightmare. So, but to, to answer your question more effectively, it is the law. It is the law. And it's your duty as an organization to have a, a communication strategy in the event that this happens. But here's, here's the truth of the matter. There is no good way to effectively communicate a breach. In my opinion, on my side of the railroad where I stand, which is in between both sides, I give a shout out and applause, applause any company that stands up and owns their breach. Number mm-hmm. two, how they do it, and because I've been privy to a few of them myself, how they do it is, 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 is extremely important. The timing, when you release that information, what are you doing to remediate it? If you're able to effectively communicate a breach, you need to, in the same breath of we have been breached, the second thing that needs to come out of your mouth is how you're remediating, how you're safeguarding these people, the, the people or the clients or the data that's been exfiltrated, and how are you moving forward? PR, you yes. know, crisis communications is, 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 is an art in and of itself that I don't proclaim to be a, an expert in. However, mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. definitely played in those realms. And what you communicate needs to be vetted with your legal counsel and your insurance company for, for a multitude, for a number of reasons. But again, how, what, is, what, what is one of the main problems with, with, with um, breach notification? Here's, here's something that I'm going to illuminate. Because of the liability that uh, that a company may assume by declaring a vulnerability or a breach or a hole in their network, they've become very shy and, and, and mm-hmm. very reserved and hyper-conservative about accepting responsible disclosures. And mm-hmm. we all know the responsible disclosure system <laughs> is one that was created by a whole bunch of, let's just say, angels to say, look, we understand there's a system out here, there's corporate people, there's government people, but we're just we're just cyber ronin that we want to go out and help you. And then you've got the bug bounty people that want to make money off of disclosing vulnerabilities. But the responsible disclosure system, every company needs to go ahead and open it up and take it seriously. Create a responsible disclosure system where <clears throat> they can leverage a, a solution like SecureDrop, where it's anonymous and it's encrypted. So the person that's submitting the vulnerability about your company can do it anonymously. And the person that's receiving it is somebody in your organization strategically placed, I would say, between the legal count, chief legal counsel and chief operating officer and chief information security officer. And that program needs to be constantly monitored to, to, to listen to the people that are submitting data about, listen, listen, we found a portal open over here. If you don't close it, you're going to get breached. And nine times out of 10, <laughs> that's exactly what happens. And mm. it's, not a bad, it's not a malicious actor that's no. doing it. It's somebody tinker tailoring and playing around in the backyard. So again, I guess to answer your, your, your question with more precision, it is imperative that, the institution understands that it has to accept 
the responsible disclosure system in their organization. Accept it. I'm not saying make it public, but have one that's available. Number two, have an effective PR and crisis communication protocol in place that is married and vetted with your legal counsel and your your compliance office. Can I just interrupt you? Sorry, can I just interrupt you there? Just on that PR, effective PR, do you think there may be a disconnect because generally public relations people don't have a security background? So obviously there's still this debate around the comms aspect. How do you think companies can sort of help fill that gap? Because traditional PR people don't come from a security background, so they might not understand, I guess, the terms, the jargon, what needs to happen. And sometimes when you're dealing with you know, security teams, they're very technical and struggle to communicate. Absolutely. And I'm going to answer that question two ways. If, if 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 I if I have the 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 mental faculty to understand to in order to achieve the, the position of vice president of PR of an organization, I've probably studied a lot of more material. I've learned crisis management. I've learned crisis PR, and I've studied. And I learned that I know that my brain works a certain way. I read something, I digest it, and then I learn it, and then I, re- I reenact it in my day to day life. Taking that same motivation and <laughs> Taking a little course in security. This is one of my, I, I go back to that. Remove the ignorance. The, the ignorant quotient out of all of these different positions in an organization no longer are viable. I don't care. You you are a VP. You are the chief communications officer, the chief PR uh, advisor. Then you should go out and study. Take a one-week course on information security. But for those who don't want to take that advice, here's how you effectively come up with a solution. You have... Like your your position is like information security officer. There's people that manage teams of information security practitioners who understand that dealing with the social aspect of of, of managing people, the technical aspects of of managing a firewall or universal threat management systems and CSIDs, et cetera, et cetera. Those people know how to communicate with the board, the non-technical jargon. That's why they're in the position. That's the only reason they got elected to be a CISO is because you're sitting at the board at the board meetings and you're not speaking ones and zeros and and TCP flags and et cetera, et cetera. You're able to Mm -hmm. effectively communicate those issues in 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 a manner that is digestible to the audience that you're speaking with. That person in that organization needs to be hand in hand married with two people in the organization, chief legal counsel or the PR team. When the communication comes out of his or her mouth, it goes into the digestion system of the legal counsel to make sure that they're saying things that are not going to you know, cause any irrevocable damage to the brand. And then the PR person takes his or her knowledge and communicates that. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's not one person. This is a merriment of a team that needs to come together and meet regularly. They need to meet regularly because they need to, at the risk advisory meetings that every company should have, and if they don't, they need to develop one. This is where the key key leaders or, or technology leaders and, and security leaders of the organization should communicate with the, with the executives on a weekly basis to discuss the risk so that they're not only aware of them, but they're tracking the, 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 the mitigation of them, but more importantly, in the event of a crisis, you're not behind it. In crisis mitigation, you have to be in front of it. You step in front of it, you control the narrative, you establish the optics, and you manage it accordingly. If you're not doing that, then you're behind. You become fodder, as we call it, you know, just just chopped up dust. And, and people, the media will take a stab at you. But those companies that if you watch, if you've seen it, and, you know, historically, those companies that are really, you know, on point, they understand, okay, mm. this is how we're going to communicate. You know, they, they don't come out so bad. Look at Marriott. Look at how Marriott handled it. Marriott did one thing that I think gives them 
a little bit more respect than other companies. They realized one thing, this is not our game. We don't do this. We don't, we, we, we didn't manage this effectively. We still have holes. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go hire a company that, man, that, that handles crises. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go hire Kroll, and they're going to come in and take care of all of this. That may not be very uh, advantageous from a cost perspective, but when you don't know something, getting out in front of the camera and communicating things without a script, without a protocol, you're just going to make yourself look horrible. There are companies that are designed mm. to do it. There are consultants that are designed to do it. And as everything in life, when you don't know something, own it and then step in front of it and find a solution. And I think that's the main thing about owning it because, honestly, just in my opinion, the work, like you said, the worst thing you can do is just, is shy away from it and, and not say anything. What I'd like to circle back on is obviously you spoke about, you know, the government election, the voting process. While we're still on the topic of mitigating risk, what can be done to minimize any future occurrences? A lot of things. Uh, you made a comment earlier about, you know, that was the government and the voting system is all about the government. I, I just want to touch on this one point really lightly, and then and then I want to get to your answer, if you don't mind. Sure. The government runs the electronic voting system process, right? It does. It's it's the overseer. However, it's it's an abundance of civilian companies that provide the technology of which these voting the, the, the votes take place. The regulation that governs how these 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 companies should be manufacturing the supply chain, the, the the physical security controls of their chips and how it's distributed, all of that to answer your question needs to be governed by an effective information security guideline. There, it's not new. There are there are multiple systems out there, or there are multiple policies out there that govern different things. Like for instance, <laughs> if you're dealing in the United States government and you want to deal with uh, cloud, you want to provide a cloud uh, service to a government entity, whether that be the Army Research Laboratories or a uh, Marine uh, Special Forces uh, Foreign Operation Post out in the middle of Fallujah, and you want to provide that as a civilian company to these soldiers or these Marines or the these 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 uh, operators out in the field, you have to go through a FISMA accreditation and you have to get the FedRAMP approved. And these are guidelines. These are these are I mean, FISMA and FedRAMP are two different guidelines that manage and oversee the security of how these technologies are introduced in the field. Why not implement a very stringent, a very direct, and a very monitored control system based off of the risk management framework that the government uses and actually enforce it on these companies? I don't see why that that that's that is the simplest low-hanging fruit answer to this problem. That is a solution. One last thing I'd really like to ask you is, do you think blockchain-based voting systems like Secure.Vote could be instrumental in solving these types of problems? <laughs> and the famous uh, the famous quote, it depends on what is means. No, I'm being funny. <laughs> it, it depends on a number of things. Um, what is the problem? Is the problem the voting system like the, the not the not the technology, but is it the, the construct of the voting system? Is there a flaw there? I don't think so. I think the flaws in the oversight and the management and the responsibility identif identifying the responsible responsible party of enforcing security measures across the entire technological sphere of voting. That's my personal opinion. However, in order to, in, in in the evolutionary terms of where we're going and where we've been. Of course, those systems are a little bit antiquated, obviously. Mm -hmm. A blockchain-type solution for electronic voting system, I think, would 
and provided the right conditions and the right oversight and the right checks and balances, leveraging the you know the the open ledgers type uh, style of blockchain where everybody can see it and things have to get vetted. Confirmations are coming into play when votes are made. In time, when we reach that level of maturity for technologically and intellectually, I definitely think that uh, blockchain could be a viable option. Most definitely. Most. When definitely. you say in time, are you talking? How long are you thinking? I'm thinking. Yeah, right. <laughs> I would say I would say in order for this big ship to steer in 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 the direction where it'd be adapted and or adopted by the United States government, I'd say five five to ten years until it's vetted okay. all the way across. But we're there from a technological standpoint, the startups and the amount of intellectual capital we have in Silicon Valley and even out there in Sydney, in Australia, all across the world, there's there's intellectual intellectual capital across this world that we can create a voting system that is salient, that's secure, that's transparent, but that has integrity that can't be uh, tested or, 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 uh, I would say, interrogated. I definitely think we have that technology now, but that's not how this ship, you know, this is not a boat. It's a ship. Yes. And it's about the adoption. It's about the behavioral change of people wanting to adapt, propagate that across, you know, all of the all of the government agencies and making people sort of more evangelists for this type of solution. So we're definitely optimistic on the five to ten years. So no, I do appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, Hyper aggressive in my optimism. <laughs> yes. But I like that. That's that's awesome. Well, Jason, I think I, I've absolutely been um really impressed with everything that you've spoken about today. I think that it's definitely given a lot of perspective, not only for me personally, but definitely our, our listeners. If uh, people were to reach out to you, h- how can they go about that? Uh they can reach me at Tate. T-A-T-E at bitsdigits.com or they can reach me at alchemy at exploitation.university, which is my new school that I'm developing for people that want to learn cybersecurity at the C-level or the executive level. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate you spending the time. And I really appreciate your time as well, Carissa. It's been an honor. Thank you. We'll speak soon. Ciao. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you got some insights from this episode of KB Cast with me, KB. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play to get every new episode as it's released. And as always, show notes are available from kbcast.com for every single episode. We're building a community, so always love to get feedback, ideas or questions on hello at kbcast.com. Keep on keeping on.